0: take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. And if you're physically able, please stand with me as we read God's word this morning. We're going to read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which, of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. May God bless his word today. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray this morning that your will would be done in our lives, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. No, my voice is not changing, I've just been battling uh, cold this week, so I might not shake hands with you today. The paradise of Eden was lost in the fall, and as a result, sin infected the human race, and we are all under its curse. No one in this room had to be taught how to lie, or cheat, or steal. The software came pre installed. It's called a sin nature. We are born with a bent towards sin, a propensity to do what is wrong. And all the world is guilty. And if we view this pivotal third chapter of Genesis as a a court case, we would see a crime, a cover up, a trial, and a verdict. First, the crime. Now, when Adam was first placed in the garden, God spoke to him right away. gave him instructions. He gave him instructions specifically regarding two trees that were primary in the garden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God allowed one and he restricted the other. And God's instructions formed the basis for everything that Adam and Eve knew. Their entire context of life centered around God's word. And they lived in perfect harmony with God and with one another. And they interpreted their lives according to his words and according to his will. But then another interpreter came on the scene. And Satan took the very same set of facts that God had shared and twisted them. In verse 1 we read, that The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Now we know who the serpent was. Revelation tells us that he is the serpent of old who fell, the devil, Satan, our enemy, our adversary and gods. The deceiver, the one who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. He is a murderer, he is a liar, he is the father of lies, the father of the lie, and there is no truth in him. And it is said that he is more crafty, more shrewd, Literally, that means wise. He quoted truth, he twisted scripture, and he questioned God's authority. He comes to the woman and he asks her, Indeed, has God said? He attacks the word of God. He tries to confuse Eve about what God had said. tries to get her to doubt it. And from the start, Satan tried to Undermine God's people by undermining God's word. And Satan takes God's positive command of every tree of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil you may not. And he restates it in a negative way God won't let you eat of every tree. So in verse 2, we see that Eve speaks to the serpent. She should have run. But she says, in verse 3, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree of the garden, which is in the the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. It's interesting that she says the touching part, because that wasn't part of God's instruction to Adam. And in verse 4, Satan completely denies God's word. He says, you won't die. Now, God says, you will die. Satan says, you won't die. It's a total lie. Because spiritual and physical death would result from the eating of this tree. And did result. In verse 5, he goes on and says, you know, God knows. In fact, he's, he's, he's somehow holding something back from you. He knows that in the day that you eat of this tree... Your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to be like God. You see, Satan drew Eve into a discussion, planted a seed of doubt about God's word, and then completely contradicted what God had said. He wanted her to forget about sin's consequences. You really won't die. And he tried to get her to doubt the goodness of God and the badness of sin. If it's good for you, why wouldn't God want you to have it? Satan's lie is basically, sin is not bad and God is not good. And the temptation is powerful because he mixes truth in with the error. Their eyes would be opened, but they would be opened not to good, but to evil and to sin. And in verse 6, we see that Eve surrendered to this temptation, very similarly to how John describes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. She gave in to the lust of the flesh. That it was a delight to the eyes. She gave in to the lust of the eyes. And that it was desirable to make one wise. She gave in to the boastful pride of life. Some commentators believe that the The root of this sin was trying to gain wisdom apart from God. She took, she ate, and then she gave to her husband. And Adam listened to the voice of his wife, as we know in verse 17. And he took what Eve gave, and he ate as well. Some people think this was an apple, I think it was a pomegranate. No matter what, they ate the fruit That was forbidden. He chose to obey his wife instead of God. And so sin came into the human race. Now the Hebrew word for sin. Kata. Is a word that is not used until chapter 4. When God is speaking to Cain. And said that sin was crouching at the door. But this word means to miss the mark. It means to go wrong. To do wrong. Sin is disobedience, it is transgression, it is missing the mark. It's a breach of trust. It's an assertion of autonomy. And when Eve sinned, she was deceived. But when Adam sinned, it was outright disobedience. He went in with eyes wide open. And as the representative head of the human race, Adam bears the responsibility for the fall of the human race into sin and for the introduction of death ...into the created order. So that's the crime. How about the cover-up? We see it in verse 7. In verse 7 we read... ...that the, uh, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They, they saw. What did they see? Well, they knew instantly they were naked. They instantly were self-conscious. And so they sewed leaves together. Whatever they could find... And they made coverings. They tried to cover up their sin. And instantly, afterwards, they knew they had done wrong. They knew they had been deceived. They knew they were guilty. And that's the nature of sin. It it bites you later. It looks good. We partake, and then wham, we're trapped. For the first time, they knew guilt and shame. And then we see how it messed up their relationship with God. In verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day or the wind of the day. Now before they had sinned, Adam and Eve had welcomed God's gracious visits. Now, after sinning, He terrifies them. They hide from Him. They they hide from God. They do something you can't do. They do something not possible. The psalmist said it well in Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? He's everywhere. But they try to cover up their sin by denying its existence and their responsibility. And so, a trial ensues. Now, God's dealings with mankind are a model of justice. Although he knew exactly what had transpired, God questions them. He doesn't pass judgment without careful interrogation. Why? Because I believe that in, the, in this interrogation, he is giving them a chance To confess their sin. In verse 9, he asks Adam a question. Where are you? Where are you, Adam? He's calling Adam to account for himself. And, And right here, he's opening the door for a confession. In verse 10, Adam answers, I heard the sound of you. Interesting what the word Adam uses here. The Hebrew word is an idiom for obeyed. In a sense, I obeyed you. The very thing he didn't do. I heard the sound of you, and I was afraid. So I hid. He had shame in the presence of God. God asked in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? Again, the door is open for confession. Confession. In verse 12, what we see is that Adam blames Eve. Well, the woman you gave me. It shows the extent of man's fall. He now sees God's good gift as a source of his trouble. Gentlemen. But he also blamed God, too. He also in a roundabout way, is pointing the finger at God and saying, the woman you gave me. Now what about Eve? In verse 13, God turns to Eve and says, and asks the question, what is this you have done? And we see Eve blame the serpent. The serpent deceived me. Now, the good thing about Eve's statement is that it was true. The servant did deceive her. But he didn't make her do it. Those of you who remember Geraldine. See, they had neglected the word of life. Ask about Geraldine later. If you don't know. They were allowed to eat from the tree of life. But they ate from the forbidden tree of knowledge. They showed contempt for what God had given. And desire for what God had disallowed. And they were responsible for their sin. They could not blame anybody else. So the verdict comes down. In verse 14 we see God speak... Directly to the serpent. No questions. Just a pronouncement. Because you have done this. Satan. Already fallen. Already the enemy. Already cursed. Cursed again. Once crafty, now cursed. God says, cursed are you. He says that he's going to put enmity between the seeds of the serpent and the woman. There are many ideas of what this means. But you could boil this down to the fact that God is pointing out that there will be now two communities of people, two classes of people, two groups of people, those who love God and those who love self. And this is foreshadowing Christ's victory over Satan. That Christ would crush The head of Satan. Now there would be consequences for Eve. In verse 16, to the woman he says, and I will make no illusions that I even understand what God is saying here, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. I'm a wimp when it comes to pain. But here, there will be pain as one of the consequences of sin. There's something else. Desire. But your desire will be for your husband. Again, many commentators have different views of what this means. Some believe it means that the woman will desire in a good way her husband. She will desire his companionship. She will desire his uh, relationship. But the thing is, in this setting, in this context of consequences for sin, that doesn't seem to match the immediate context or even the broader context or even the mixed usage of that word desire. Because the other time this word desire is used is in chapter 4, verse 7. Again, God to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Sin wants to master you. Sin wants to dominate you. And so this suggests that as God is giving these consequences, he is saying there will be pain and there will also be a desire to dominate your husband, to rule over your husband. It would be a lot easier for me to say, I think it means something else, ladies. Please know that. But I think what God is saying is that the marriage covenant will now be frustrated by a battle of the wills. Don't we know that to be our experience? Desire, resistance towards her husband. And then he says, and he will rule over you. Not a good thing here. Rather than love and cherishing, God describes a power struggle to come. Now, male leadership had been the ideal pre-fall condition that God had ordained. And marriage intended, uh, God intended marriage to be complementary and harmonious in its pre-fall state, as it was, is now infected and corrupted by sin. And it shows itself in forced submission and heavy-handed leadership on the part of of men towards their, their wives. sin corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. And if that seems to not sit easily with you, it makes the point. (laughs) makes the point. We sinful humans don't get it. It's all we know. Now there's consequences to Adam as well. In verse 17... We, we see that as Adam's sin was in eating the forbidden fruit, God now repeats the eating theme to him five times. In verse 17, "...because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of, the, uh, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread." Adam, too, will suffer pain and frustration in natural relationships. Cursed is the ground because of you. Toil, sorrow, would now come into the picture. Interestingly, toil and sorrow is the same word used for woman's pain. Adam forfeited the blessing he once enjoyed. Work, by the way, was not a consequence of sin. Work already existed. God put Adam, in chapter 2, in the garden, to cultivate and keep the garden. But work used to be a joy. Now it would be a burden. Toil and drudgery in work is a consequence of the sin. And Adam's previous relationship to the ground, which was to rule over it, is now marred. It will now resist. And God says, to dust you shall return. Ultimately, we see death and we see separation. Sin separates us from life And from God, the giver of life. And physical death is a consequence of sin, but it is also a merciful blessing. It opens up the possibility of something beyond the grave. An answer for the spiritual death that resulted due to sin. It opens up the possibility for eternal salvation. Now it is a testimony to God's faithfulness that even in the midst of mankind's sin, this fall into sin, God did not abandon them. Even though they had rebelled against him, he provided for them. He looked with compassion on them. And in verse 21 we read that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. This is the first sacrifice for sin. God has sentenced them, and now he does for them what they cannot do for themselves. He deals with their shame. He clothes them. It shows his tender care. And through his sacrifice, he restores the alienated couple to fellowship with himself and with one another. Now, I'm going to save the rest of the chapter for next week when we deal in depth with the topic of salvation. But what I want to do now is make several comments in regards to sin and a few applications. First of all, we, and we knew it, and we know it, we too are guilty of all that Adam and Eve were guilty of. We allow ourselves to be deceived. We doubt the goodness of God. We believe the lies of Satan. We walk into sin with eyes wide open. And like Adam and Eve, we try to cover up our sin with anything we can find. Activity. Busyness. Accomplishments. We try to cover our sin. Whether we're children trying to hide a childish mistake from our parents. An innocent mistake. Whether we're a teen... Attempting and ashamed to tell our parents of a bad decision or an adult covering up a monumental moral failure. Our self-centeredness and our self-orientation is as natural to us as breathing is. Back when we were in kindergarten, none of us, even the sweetest among us, had to be taught to kick Or to hit, or to be jealous, or to speak hatefully, or to push to the front of the line, or to compete. It comes naturally. But what is supernatural is how God transforms our lives by His Spirit when we come to know Jesus he makes our hearts sensitive to sin and how much it grieves him. Where once we did not care, now it seems like a big deal. Ever notice how sins that didn't seem like a big deal before you came to know Jesus now seem so huge? The harsh reality, though, is that Christians still sin. And so we struggle with some common issues regarding sin. Things like, what about the sins of my past that still haunt me? What about the sins of the present that drag me down? What about all the sin that surrounds us in our culture that we live in? First of all, what about the sins of the past that haunt me? Let me ask you have you confessed them to God and to anyone you may have injured? or harmed? Have you made restitution if necessary or possible? Have you repented? Have you turned from those sins? Gone the other way. First John nine, as Charlie shared earlier says if we confess our sins, if we admit them, God is faithful and righteous and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is hope for us in Jesus. And we must walk in the newness of life that we have been given in Christ. But we need to tell ourselves the truth. Psalm 103, in verses 10 through 12, says that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God's removed our transgressions from us. But often what happens is we go dredging up. We go dredging after sins that have been confessed and repented and forgiven. And we allow lies of the enemy To rob us of the joy of life in Christ. Now what about the sins of the present that drag us down? Let me just say, don't wallow in them. And don't coddle them. It's like Schmeagel in the Lord of the Rings. You've got to let go of your precious. If you don't, it will destroy you. See, sins are not pets to be pampered. They are garbage to be thrown out. They are to be refused. We are to resist the devil and he will flee from us. We are not to open the door to Satan's schemes. We are, we, it's, the scriptures tell us, don't be deceived. We are doing battle with our enemy every moment. We are to abstain from every appearance of evil now what about the sin that surrounds us in the culture all we can say is we must all choose how we're going to live in the culture in which we live now we can isolate and stay away we can assimilate and blend in but both options to their extreme have drawbacks isolate and you won't affect anything assimilate and you run the risk of being swallowed up. The third option is the most difficult. And it really the, incorporates the best of both of those ideas being separate and holy unto God while being salt and light in the culture. John Milton wrote a poem in 1667 entitled Paradise Lost, and it begins with these words. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Mankind was cast out of the garden, expelled, sent out. We read in Galatians 4, verse 4, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That word, God sent forth, is a Greek word, ekbalo. It means to cast out, to throw down. See, Jesus was sent out of heaven to rescue us from sin. The one greater man is Jesus, the second Adam. The only way to restore God's intended order is through new life in Christ. And Jesus came to earth to save sinners. He took our pain, our enmity, our toil, our sorrow. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus tasted death for everyone so that we might be saved. Mankind would not take the blame. But Christ did. Mankind took of the forbidden fruit and death resulted. Jesus took the curse on the cross, the tree of life, and the gift of eternal life resulted. Let's pray together. Lord God, we... Thank you and praise you for your goodness, for your great mercy, for your great compassion toward us. And Lord, we just come to you today as needy people, needing a touch from the Savior. Lord, we lay ourselves at your feet. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we're going to be dismissed here. I want to encourage anybody to come up and say hello. I won't shake your hand. And I'll breathe the other way. I want to say a word, too, about the 31-day challenge. We're two weeks in. I just want to mention, if you miss a day here or there, you might even miss a week, don't despair. Just start today. Just open the word, open the book, ask God to speak to you. Gentlemen, be gentle with your families as you attempt to lead. And families, please be gentle with them as you attempt to follow. And for our closing verse, I want to read what Paul wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired him in 1 Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.